Why are people so worried about the protest spreading misinformation? Like, if, you, if you're up on your high horse saying they're spreading misinformation, you're clearly smart enough to know that it's misinformation, so why are you worried? Um, I think it's those people at the margins that are the biggest concern. Because yes, there are smart people um, with degrees and shit, but there are also dumb people with degrees and shit, as, as you know. David Cunliffe remains about as popular in the Labour caucus as a pussycat at Gareth Morgan's house. Look, this is a la-la budget when my eyebrow goes up. It's a joke. Police still arrest criminals in New Zealand. We've tried cannabis prohibition for the past 40 years. The fact is, that was a boring, useless speech. Sip it, sweetie, I'm getting the emphasis. They say a week is a long time in politics. Hello and welcome to the Iron Duke podcast for yet another week of our takes on policy and politics, where we go through our peaks and our pits, some interesting bits, and anything that fits from New Zealand and around the world. I'm Byron Terrace, and I'm joined by Madison Burgess-Smith. This week, we are going to battle on the OCR, because I said it was my pit, Byron said it was his peak, which just goes to show we're not as in sync as we think we are. Byron's also going to cover off cruising, I'm going to cover off phase three, and then we are joined by John Carnegie of Energy Resources Aotearoa to chat us through all things powerful. So the official cash rate has been raised by Adrian or at the Reserve Bank, uh, 25 basis points, so that the official cash rate of New Zealand is now sitting at 1%. That is a tool to target inflation. We've talked many times on this podcast about rising inflation and how damaging that is to the cost of living, and especially to those at the lowest end of the income scale. And I think this is my peak of the week, Mm -hmm. because it shows that the government is doing something. Now, I know that the RBNZ is separate from the politicians that sit in the round house, but it does show that they're taking this seriously. Coming up to 1% is getting back to long-run normal interest rates for New Zealand. The impact that this will have is slow down spending, reducing demand slightly, and that could hopefully pull in the cost of living just a smidge. I think this is the signalling that makes the biggest difference here, signalling that by the end of the year we might get up to uh, another couple of basis points risen, which is good, just shows that we need to start reining in our spending and start taking inflation seriously. So that's why it's my peak of the week. Look, I'm in a camp that disagrees. At the moment, we have so many over-leveraged families. Mm. We've got so many families and households that have borrowed heavily whilst interest rates have been low with the expectation that they would sit there for a couple of years. We've got first-home buyers who are over-leveraged getting into their first home. More concerningly, and I've spoken about this quite a bit, we've got people nearing retirement who have re-leveraged their homes to help their kids get into homes. We've got rampant inflation in this country for a number of things, not just because it's easy to borrow money. People's wages are rising at exponential rates. We've got a huge number of global supply side issues that are definitely raining down on us. Fuel prices are going up. We've got no control over that. It's not entirely to do with the fact that people can borrow cheap money at the moment. I think the Reserve Bank, however, does have to use the one tool it has in its toolbox that does combat inflation, and that's monetary policy. While I think, yes, inflation is being caused by some global factors and also government government spending, Mm. central government spending, the tool that the RB can use is being used. And whilst we're on the topic of inflation, I note that the Ipsos Issues Monitor for February 2022, which is a really good resource for those people that are interested in the mood of the nation, notes that the number one concern of New Zealanders at the moment is the rising cost of living. 
What I'm saying is that isn't just because we can borrow cheap money. It's because food prices are going up, fuel prices are going up, and those are entirely outside of the controls of monetary policy. I'm getting the point that you're making that this is one way that they can control it. Lending requirements have genuinely started to cool the housing market. So there have been interventions there that have been successful. What I'm really worried about is lower income families who have just gotten to their first home, that a couple of basis points on their mortgage will be the difference between having a house to raise their kids in and having to foreclose. It's an interesting one. This is the only tool the RB's got, and with inflation high, it's got to do something. I know it's got to do something, but I also had to pick a pit of the week, and so that was mine. Tell me something that's good that's going on. What's your peak in the week? My peak of the week is our move to phase three, which I and you predict to happen today. Phase three essentially just means we're getting on with the show and we're preparing to live with the virus. As we all know, our testing system is absolutely f- It's basically fallen over already. Some people are waiting up to seven days for the results of their tests. So the move to phase three means that only those who are household-like contacts are considered to be close contacts who then have to isolate if someone they know gets COVID. Absolute paranoia that I've been experiencing about you giving me the virus goes away or you getting it and me having to be a close contact. Yeah, you should still be paranoid about that. Goes away because I know that you're going to be a super spreader. I just freaking know it. The truth is, you know, half the country still supports, you know, the red traffic light setting and that's awesome. And the remaining half of the country is deeply divided. Either they think it's not enough or they think it's too much. But ultimately, we are currently carrying out a pandemic response with a Delta mindset in an Omicron world. And I think one thing we really need is clearer public health advice so that people feel confident as we transition into this phase three response that it is the best public health response. I'm excited that we're starting to move towards a model of self-reporting. So if you feel like you've got COVID, you just self-report it. You don't have to line up for half a day in a queue and then wait half a week to get your test result back, which essentially puts your life on hold. I think the Prime Minister has been bold with this transition to phase three. I think what needs to accompany it, though, is some of that clearer messaging around it is safe to live our lives like this. We've got to get rapid antigen tests. We've got to get rats. That's how you get on with, with your life. You've got to be able to say, to your point, you know, I think I'm sick. I've got to confirm this so that I know, so that I know to take myself out of the workplace or out of, for my instance, out of the pub. I need to make sure <laughs> I don't turn up and, and infect all the other guys that are there. No, so, so some places will require actual confirmation that you do have COVID. A business like ours, for example, would probably just be able to say, hey guys, I'm off sick. It's actually no different to having the flu. If you're experiencing flu-like symptoms that match those of the COVID variant, then you just self-report that. One thing that did have me a little bit concerned though on the topic of catching the flu is that the Prime Minister in a press conference earlier in this week said that she wasn't ruling out keeping the red traffic light settings in place to deal with the peak of influenza over the winter period, which is concerning. This I mean, is outrageous. We know that 500 people a year die of the flu. and That number was floated around a lot at the beginning of the pandemic. I just felt like it was a massive overreach to make that sort of a statement. Some might ask, Why not do away with the traffic light system entirely? We will go through our first winter with COVID at the same time that flu returns, following two winters of very low rates. So as our borders open, we approach winter with the potential of more illness. We need to ensure our health system can manage a heavier burden as well. We never had to do tests to see if we've got influenza. No, you didn't. Is there a test for influenza? I don't know, maybe a throat swab, like a brain swab. But yeah, so... Can I do a spit test? I'm I'm excited to see us go back to more of a self-reporting, self-care model because we know that it isn't going to be as bad, but we've got to ditch this Delta mindset in this Omicron world now. We've got to have good public health advice to do that. That's That's pretty sound. That's pretty sound logic. What's your pit of the week? P&O Cruises, New Zealand's favourite cruise line, has cancelled 
their Auckland home ported winter season. This to me is a bit of straw in the wind about how difficult it is for the tourism industry to figure out how they're going to get started again. Home porting a cruise ship, basing it out of Auckland, gives the biggest economic impact that you can possibly get out of cruise. Yeah, You've got boost. suppliers, you've got a turn, you've got people flying in from around the country to join a cruise ship, either go around New Zealand, go to the Pacific, enjoy a time and a well-deserved holiday. Cancelling that sends a big signal locally that, you know, we still don't have a pathway to return. No, we don't. Hopefully, international cruising can return, though, by the end of the year, over the summer season. You know, we host over 100,000 Australians on cruise. Most Australians come to New Zealand on cruise over the summer period, which is quite interesting. I kind of want some certainty for our, for our tourism operators, the small guys and gals out there in regional New Zealand who have supplied the cruise ships with food and beverage and all of that good stuff that goes mm. right through a deep supply chain into Heartland stuff, you know. Think about the onion growers from um, Papakura <laughs> supplying the cruise ships. You know, do you know how many onions supplying go on a cruise ship? the onions that go on the top of your yeah. cruise ship snag. I, I, saw, I saw a spreadsheet once about how many thousand onions and how many thousand carrots go on a cruise. It's, it's numbers that are just stupid. I'm, I'm always just completely dumbfounded with the information that you get supplied with. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, onions, carrots, yeah. potatoes, it's just next level shit. But that's really important for rural communities. The mm. closer the market, the better it is for our suppliers. And if you've got a cruise ship home ported out of Auckland, that market's right there. That market's right there. You're so Brilliant. passionate about that. Yeah, well, I want people to have a good time. I want people <laughs> to have a good time. I want them to go enjoy themselves. Where do these cruises go? Tell us more. These cruises, some of them go around New Zealand on, you know, seven days. Some of them go seven days into the Pacific and around New Caledonia is a very popular spot for cruising. Um, and there's a sh- couple of short ones usually run by P&O, which are comedy cruises where they get a number of <laughs> big names. Uh, is that where you go every July? Uh, <laughs> no comment. These are tourists who would have otherwise been spending their money in New Zealand that are now spending their money with a cruise operator. So think about that argument for a second and then think about the suppliers who had to give that cruise ship all of their produce. Think about the local tourism operators that are in Napier and whatnot where you go and turn up from Auckland and spend your money. It's actually quite targeted on a cruise ship and it's not this whole, oh, that big Americans coming and not spending a dollar on shore at all. No, no, this is just a home ported out of Auckland People flying in, making the most out of New Zealand supplies and New Zealand produce, the economic impact is gone. Mm. Now, cruise does have a timeline in Australia, and hopefully that means cruise has a timeline in New Zealand later on in the year. I hope that some you know, some New Zealand cruiselings can get back on board <laughs> and really enjoy. That's right. I <laughs> Did used, you just make that word up? No, it's 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 a common word in the industry. Yeah, you know, it's a common word in the industry. We're going to have the CEO of High Energy Resources oh, you're coming in so soon lame. You're to join so us. <laughs> Uh, and just a little bit about Energy Resources Aotearoa, just before John gets in, it's the Industry Association for the Energy Sector, covering everyone from producers of, uh, of natural gas all the way through users, and then some large electricity retailers as well. Today we're joined by John Carnegie, the Chief Executive of Energy Resources Aotearoa. Kia ora John, welcome to the podcast. Kia ora, kia ora. Thanks so much for coming. John has got a long history in the New Zealand energy sector, spending a bit of time at Genesis in the regulatory affairs role, and then 10 years at the Business New Zealand Energy Council. So, John, tell us a bit about your current role in the organisation that is Energy Resources Aotearoa. Actually, it's been a quite an exciting journey, actually, over the last couple of years. Came into the role at the end of 2019. The organisation wasn't in good heart. You know, one of the things I've been saying, the world's been changing and we needed to change with it. So, you know, we underwent a, a strategy reset with the great help of you and oh. Phil O'Reilly, oh. that got us to a position where actually we knew our place in the world. Cool. Um, we knew where we were heading, we knew what we needed to do, and importantly actually we 
had a framework within which we could have conversations with the board about is A getting us closer or further away from where we want to get? Is B, and out, actually out of that came the name change. So give us a little state of the sector and then we'll talk about what happened last year. The energy sector's in a bit of a precarious state actually. Mm. All of the signals out there is a sector in a state of stress and you know there are a whole bunch of reasons for that that we can talk about as we proceed. Let's jump straight into it, John. Why is the cost of energy so high in our country and, and what the hell went wrong last year? Who's responsible for all of this? Yeah, well, look, actually, let's take them in reverse order. Let's talk about what happened last year. There are some deeper issues. Mm. There were some unique circumstances on the night, the, you know, and some organisational faux pas that kind of got us to where we got to. And to be clear, we're talking about the August 9th blackouts, for those that don't that's, know. That's right. Um, but actually, it's worthwhile actually just standing back quickly, thinking about, you know, what are the underlying issues? There are three or four. Look, the first is actually that what we're seeing in the market is a cacophony of signals, right? There are so many signals out there that are being sent, predominantly policy signals to the sector. You know, we've got a government with a strong desire to intervene, to achieve its goals, got a mistrust of markets, we've got a desire to centralise, a lot going on in in, in the sector. We've actually got a change in the nature of policy as well. And so, you know, we no longer seem to have a system that's idea- and investment and innovation-led. Instead, actually, it now seems to be based around chasing artificial targets and government largesse mm-hmm. and subsidies. Yeah. So, you know, quite a, quite a different feel to, to what's going out there in electricity and energy market land. We no longer seem to be interested in optimal energy policy. Actually, now what we've got is climate change policy that masquerades as energy policy. Actually, I guess the other factor that's kind of floating around is just the massive uncertainty. You know, kind of these things are kind of cumulative, right? Yep. So what we're observing in the market is actually a misalignment between the expectations of the demand side and the supply side. So you get volatile prices, you know, that's what we're seeing. Which is why my energy costs are going up at home, Yep, that's certainly a part of it. You actually also see the fact that with that misalignment of expectations, you can't get the demand and supply side striking long-term deals, which, of course, the supply side needs to invest. Yep. Right? So out of all of that, then what do you get? Actually, you get underinvestment, right? Or you get investment stopping. So the sum of all of that stuff is policy-led endemic underinvestment in a stressed system. Wow. And none of that is good. Uncertainty helps nobody. Yeah. You know, you're a business, what do you do? Well, your whack goes up, yep. right? So what does that mean? Well, you either don't invest because you can't make the hurdle rate, mm-hmm. so we're seeing a bit of underinvestment, mm. or your prices go up. Ah. Mm. Right. So look, let me take that all back to the 9th of August. What you're actually seeing there is the canary in the mine, mm. right? You know, look, there were some unique characteristics there, and I wouldn't necessarily overplay that particular event. Yep. But what you're seeing there is it showed the vulnerabilities of a renewable-based system. And, you know, if I was down the other end of the terrace, I'd be, there would be some lessons to be learned about the challenges associated with a more rapid transition away from fossil fuels in a highly hydro-dominated system, right? So Before that system was ready. Yeah, well, that's, that's right. You know, we're strong supporters of the government's objectives. Actually, what a lot of this just comes down to is pace. Yeah. We've got an electricity system now under immense pressure when, of course, we need to massively invest. 
yep. in the electricity system to help us decarbonise. I mean, it could have been a lot worse last year. You know, there's a massive, in fact, it's called a gorilla rig, um, sitting. In nice. fact, in fact, the pictures are amazing. What does it do? Um, well, it's a, a rig that's right next to the Maui drilling platform. Gotcha. Yep. And it is massive. And so OMV have got a program of work yep. where they're going to drill a whole bunch of wells yep. in, in Maui. They've already drilled a number. It's going great guns. Todd's doing its work in Mangahewa. Um, Beach will be doing some work for Coupe. So, you know, they've all got plans on the upstream. They're sweating their existing assets because we're, right. we're now got operating it. in a closed system. There are no more offshore permits. Yep. So, so the consents they've got are all that's left. Yep. This isn't about growing the pie. They're sweating their existing assets, right? Got it. Are we reaching a point where we may run out of pie before we've found something to replace it with? Well, that's a really good question. And that's the risk. When you look at all of those factors, what you're seeing is an opening of an energy gap. Mm-hmm. Right? An energy gap. An energy, that sounds like a disaster. An a energy gap. Well, expensive energy gap. Well, it's currently being filled with coal. 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 Yeah. Nice. Right? We both, he's, he pointed yeah. out, like we both <laughs> got that one right. That was exactly. Awesome. When you're being driven by climate change objectives, doesn't really make that much sense to be filling that gap with coal. What are the alternatives? There's wind, there's solar, there's geothermal. They're all fantastic. We love them all. But we don't have enough of them. How do we get to that optimum position where we've got a good balance between as much renewable as the system can have, but also have that thermal backup that we can turn it on when we need it? And it doesn't have those supply issues sitting in behind the gas market. UCETS. Ah, good. Emissions trading scheme. And, and markets and market participants. You know, it's, it's interesting, right? We haven't had supply issues, even though we've had some pretty low hydrological inflow years. Yeah. You know, we haven't had any security of supply issues for a long time. When was the last time we had something that looked even similar to what happened well, last year? Well, there was that big blackout in um, Auckland. So a long while ago. Well, a long time and ago. And that, that was actually a failure of infrastructure rather than an absence of energy okay but you know they're they're really unusual and the market actually has done a fantastic job at ensuring that the next increment of generation has been brought on in a timely way people say we've sleptwalked to 80 or 90 percent of renewable energy i'm almost inclined to swear (laughs) (laughs) that is such a load of rubbish actually what got us to that a liberalised electricity market that relied on market signals and market investment and, funnily enough, generators delivering to consumers. Yeah, exactly. We were world leaders. So that brings me on. That. That's a great That's a great point to segue into. What does our energy system look like when compared to the rest of the world? Because, you know, our, do we have a reliable, do we have a secure supply compared to other countries? Is this actually a bad market? We're, we sit pretty well and even... You know, actually, people often confuse, you know, renewable electricity, of which at the moment we have a 100% renewable electricity target, mm-hmm. but they confuse that for renewable energy. Yeah. Now, we sit at about 40% renewable energy, so 60% fossil fuel-based. Even that's in the top two or three. Mm-hmm. When you look at most of our system ratings, they are world-beating, which doesn't have me jumping to full of problems. It doesn't have me jumping to that. You know, I think we've actually got to... Look, of course, can any system 
improve? Yeah. Absolutely. Do you need to make sure that the regulatory, the commercial and the legal, all those settings, the technological settings work for today, tomorrow, for the next five years? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Does it tell me it's fundamentally broken? Nope. No. So you talk about our great renewable story there, but how do we compare in terms of cost of energy? Well, actually, um, oh, look, it's been a while since I've actually looked at these numbers, but we're actually middle of the pack. Oh, wow. You know, uh, we, we actually do okay in terms of, I think, OECD rankings. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it would be interesting to see those stats given, you know, last year and, you know, over the next couple of years, which will be interesting reading. But, you know, we sit okay, and which is actually remarkable given that most of those countries who sit above us on their performance all have interconnectors. Interconnectors? Interconnectors. They all get their energy or From can each get. Other. E- you know, we get Denmark and Norway, they're all mm. getting excess. So when the wind blows hugely in continental Europe, yep. have a guess where that cheap energy goes. It goes somewhere else. Somewhere else. Mm. Yep. So, in fact, Germany, the great irony of closing its nuclear and coal fired plant, actually relies a lot of nuclear power from France, France. across the border. Wow. Right, so they've all got interconnectors. You know, even Australia, when you look at them, all their states are interconnected, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, or certainly on the eastern seaboard. So, so, so you know, we we're a standalone yeah. island nation, doing it pretty good. That, that's actually quite positive for mm. a, a worldview of our little island nation down yeah. at the bottom of the world in terms of being self-sufficient and electricity yeah. and things like that, not having to trade. But we can't finish there because, as is tradition on the podcast, we always have a quick hot or not about a few topical issues that are going on in the world. So, Maddie, why don't you kick us off with our first hot or not? All of mine relate to the same topic this week. Up first is planting a community garden on Parliament's front lawn, hot or not? Not. Allegedly throwing poo at police officers? (laughs) Definitely not. And lastly, getting aboard your mate's barge in Picton because you don't have a vaccine pass to get on the Inter-Islander and just hoping you make it to the protest in Wellington. (laughs) (laughs) This guy's got seven spots. (laughs) Listeners, if you want to get on board, you have to be way on your own life jacket, though. Very own Dunkirk. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, no. Okay. So I take a more of a geopolitical flavour to to my hot or not. Um, Taking a sliver of a neighbouring country, just a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit, no. <laughs> Exporting liquefied natural gas to secure e- the EU energy supplies. Oh, look, that's a definite, that's hot. That's hot. That's, that's hot. hot. That sounds good. Mm. That's hot. And here's one for the readers of Metro Mag. <laughs> Vladimir Putin spending time in New Zealand as an undercover KGB agent <laughs> posing as a barter shoe salesman. A barter shoe salesman. Barter shoe salesman. Well, that kind of fits though, doesn't it? <laughs> it's um, that's definitely uh, not. Oh. <laughs> the article was titled Putin and Me. Oh. <laughs> Our time in Siberia. Thank you. <laughs> Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute pleasure, team. Cheers. Thank Thank you. you.